0: Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell
1: Yep, 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 love to change that old world, didn't know what to do back then, we got a few more ideas these days, but we appreciate Alvin Lee's foresight and pro- prophetic lyrics there from, man, so long ago, back when uh, back when Chris and I were both puppies, and uh, of course the band was 10 years after, he was one hell of a guitar player, that guy, I remember him at Woodstock, he had a big couple of songs he did at Woodstock there, and uh, in that era, so uh we flash back to then look at all the changes betwixt then and now as we roll in on right on the threshold here chris chris joined us right for the show uh, of uh what they call in the spanish world navidad uh they used to call it like christmas up there but they're calling it the holiday season now we'll get into that later in the show and i've been wanting all week to get into this Saturnalia thing which I've mentioned a couple of times and I'm gonna have time to play with that today and then uh, also uh, David Duke's Christmas message, which I thought was pretty interesting and we'll polish off towards the end but i I stumbled on something late last night that I wanted to get in here in the first part of the show. Uh, I sent it to Brent and said. Man, you know, here's something I think you're going to find interesting. And so probably talk about it tomorrow. It's got a lot of correlations with Brent's usual thinking and oratory. And there's some new stuff on there I've never heard before. So uh, pretty interesting historical source. Uh, I'll let all that unfold. It's the 20th of uh, December. Here on the threshold of Navidad Christmas and uh, the long time when there's kind of a an exhale somewhat for most people there's an exhale here for a little bit <laughs> you know not only the big dinner and all that but you're you know around some but most people will be around family stuff or uh or, or whatever and uh of course it, you just kind of brace yourself from the year you've been through and strap yourself in for the year we're gonna go through because it is gonna be an eventful one without a doubt um, here this morning, you know how much I admire Vlad, the destroyer. How are you doing it? Chris, by the way, I just dove in the deep end of the pool here. How are you doing this morning?
2: Well, it's never a dull moment in my life, but I'm doing quite well this morning. Uh, great friends around. Uh, oh, I was blessed and gifted one Christmas food fair, cookies, candies, and so on. Marvelous could not be better. They are absolutely exquisite, and they came from a very nice source.
1: Okay, well good for you, and I'm glad you got that support around you there, and of course you've been gone through a lot of personal uh, uh, trepidations here for the last couple of years, and involving your spouse, not only leaving you, but you know, robbing you on the way out, and, and then causing you problems in the in the backlash. And so, I, I know that's got a lot of personal effects on a person. I've been through that stuff when I was younger. And uh, uh, so, good. I'm glad you got the support level there. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, you, you might. Have, I might have to send you on a holiday errand. And check on our friend Robert. I mean, he's MIA here lately.
2: Uh, That's kind of curious. I think he's been busy with uh, different work tasks. He was doing the Uber thing. I think he's uh, morphed into a more service-oriented project that may be more lucrative for him. And he's a pretty good spirit, so he's probably very, very busy at this time of the year. And I would guess that's accounting for his absence, but I will follow up and validate, uh, do a verification of the facts and see if that's actually the thing or if there's something I missed with him. I hope not.
1: Okay. And, you know, we got another old friend out there in the Vegas area. Don't hear from him anywhere near enough. Uh, Brent, who's also a black guy that used to – have you met Brent yet?
2: I don't think that I have, regrettably.
1: Okay, well, you need to, and I'm sure your paths will cross. He's driving a bus out there for one of the tour services or something, I think. But he used to hang around our CCG meetings. Now, this is over 25 years ago, man, in Atlanta, where we'd meet on a weekly basis. And he didn't come up constantly because of conflicts, but he was there, uh, and he's just a really good guy. Okay, He's real easy to spot because he's big and just a, a salt-of-the-earth kind of the earth guy, and I hope you get to cross paths with him out there. He he calls in occasionally. He's called in two or three times. I, I didn't hear from him for, man, years, and he called into the show cold one day and said, Roger, this is Brent. And I, Holy smoke. He's a real good guy, though. You'll uh, cross paths with him out there. Yep. Uh, Brent, the bus driver. Um sure. we had we had some real uh, solid people in that group but of course I'm here with Jack and Jack's probably listening today he's Having this cancer battle that he's been going through, and all kinds of complications with that, but he looks fantastic, especially with what he's been through in the last. Since I about the same time, about the same time I thought I could step out a window and fly is when he was going, when he was going into into this stuff back in July.
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, like we get together on our Tuesday thing and it's like we're like the walking invalid bunch, you know, all these old (laughs) men. We all got all of our specific little problems and challenges. Anyway, Jack was part of that group way back then. And Tom was, of course, also. And who else have you all heard from? Harvey Wysong was part of that. And uh, just a lot of good old friends. You know, that's that's the thing about our Patriot friends is when you get into this and you wake up, you find out who your friends are and who your acquaintances were.
2: Yes. Uh, curious, I was uh, leaving after the show yesterday. I had stopped at one of our Wally World, that famous uh, gathering spot for all sorts of people, and I was standing in the line at the financial center uh, doing a transaction, and there was a fellow in front of me that had a... Um, Oh, probably a five or four or five-year-old boy in the basket that was blonde-haired and uh, just really a curious young fellow. And the guy that was in front of me, he was a, it turned out he was 57 years old, 10 years younger than me, but he had on a, a U.S. Marine Corps jacket. So I gave him a hearty "simperfi" and simper Veritas, and we got to chatting, and he was special ops, and... um He was a targeted individual also and a victim of some uh, illegal abuse like myself, and so I shared the video that I have with him, and uh, he divulged that he has some connections that incorporate the head of the Southwestern U.S. FBI that might be very assistive in investigating corruption in government, and uh, they don't... His uh, relation there is not known. I think it's a marital extended family member, but uh, it could be very interesting and intriguing, and who knows where it may lead.
1: Well, wow, right here at the holidays when all these families get together and sometimes see each other for the only time during the year. Isn't that a coincidence?
2: What a coincidence. I tell you, I see higher powers moving in all sorts of circles in, in my life particular it's just it doesn't seem to end it's it's just exponential
1: if if there wasn't some kind of a force driving me and controlling what i've been doing for so much of my life now we wouldn't be having these shows we wouldn't have this platform and above all we wouldn't have this knowledge and understanding which empowers and uh uh puts and it puts the armor on you it puts the armor of god's truth on you okay
2: Yeah, that's nine one (laughs) one,
1: and and so uh, so you got a lot of things to be grateful about here as I look back on that, and I, you know, I kind of that's a hard when you get into this. I got into it years ago, and you first started seeing a lot of these inclinations on this divine divine force that that has moved this. Well, I'm talking about the entire project, okay. And, and Because I've been so associated with it for so many years so closely, I know all these little stories of important key things that happened from John's patriarchal blessing to when he knocked off the book of, at the University of Denver Law Library and it opens to the pages and it's covering the things that the exchequer can't seize when they uh, execute a, le- a, a warrant of a, 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 a what we would call a levy. A war, an extent they called it okay, I mean the the extent. pardon me,
2: extent or extent
1: no extent, I believe, like to the extent of what you can take, but uh mm-hmm. uh but they had that's part of the confusion heres they had all these different labels uh for these actions, there were a lot of them in Latin and whatnot, not, Sieri fascius. Is uh, to yeah. to make known. It's all these things that were so difficult for me back then, and hell, I still hadn't mastered all that side of it. But I, I should say, as we approach tax season, we'll be talking about it, it's that. Tis the season to be jolly, <laughs> rolling <into>, and <laughs> rolling. In. Well, you know they get to they get to uh, they get to uh, celebrate Jesus for the only time all year, and then they get to roll into tax season. I mean, it's a one-two punch, man.
2: Well, that kind of brings up your um, thing you're maybe you're going to play about Saturnalia and the fact that the people have been deceived to believe that this is the birth of Christ. Uh, which it has absolutely no relationship whatsoever to at this time of year because this was not I think it was in April sometime. And or the resurrection either one. I think it's more actually Nimrod or uh Flavius Constantine, uh Justinian you no. Know, there are a number there are different people that seem to claim the December 25th day as their day of their birth, but it's certainly not the Christ.
1: Well, we're, we, and we are going to get into that probably in the second hour here. And the, since this uh, video is about 30 minutes long, let me go ahead and play it. And uh, uh, we'll have a couple of minutes to talk about it. And then, like I said, I've sent it to Brent. He, he may be listening today. So uh, this is something I stumbled on last night over on Michael Rivera's site and uh it's the interview is done by a pretty famous guy who I really appreciate his work Christopher uh, Christopher Hetchens uh, isn't that his name the uh, author uh and, and yeah he's a uh, uh Chris hedges Chris Hedges, he's written a lot of stuff and and, and was pretty controversial, either in, not to our depth, but uh, uh, on more of the surface issues. He's excellent. He's a true seeker. Uh, they don't like him. I've got to tell you something. And he's interviewing a guy here who's an economist. He's uh, evidently some kind of a tenured professor and has been around for a while, but it seems to be, I get the impression he's highly respected. And his name is Michael Hudson and his new book, Uh, and and forgive them their debts, lending, foreclosing, and redemption from the Bronze Age finance to the Jubilee year. Let me read the title of this book again. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I thought my title of my book was long. (laughs) And forgive them for their debts, colon, Lending, foreclosure, and redemption from Bronze Age finance to the Jubilee year. I think y'all are going to find a couple of he. Now, this guy is no slouch, all right? And he's been involved in a project, I think he said at Harvard, where for 20 years they've been going back to, to Babylonian and, and, and Sumerian cuneiforms and putting all that stuff on digitally uh-huh. and researching all this, this stuff about those cultures and how they operated from the internal documents if you will. And uh, and right. may I add pro- unredacted. <laughs> so uh, uh let me play yes, this. That's right. <laughs> well, you I think you're about to find out how true that statement is. Let me see if I can get this and get the levels and Today okay. We
0: discuss an economy
3: trap in the scaffolding of debt with economist Michael Hudson. I don't see any escape
4: mechanism. The lowering interest rates was simply to inflate real estate housing prices right. and the stock prices. And that's that. Uh, inflating the stock prices and lowering the interest rates means people can't get a safe way of saving for their retirement. So, uh, uh, th- and the pension funds go broke. So there go people's pensions. They're not going to be, uh, the old people are going to be suffering especially as in the case of Greece, again, and as was the case in antiquity. So everywhere you look, uh, in putting the interest of the creditors who are the 1% over the 99%, the economy is con-
3: uh, committing financial suicide.
1: I think y'all gonna enjoy this, here it goes.
3: ...trapped in punishing debt peonage, most of which can never be repaid. Credit card debt, auto debt, bank debt, medical debt, mortgage debt, and student debt, now $1.5 trillion, siphons off larger and larger portions of our income. The rise of an oligarchic class of Wall Street creditors, enriched primarily from imposing debt peonage on the population, is, as Karl Marx observed, part of the cyclical nature of capitalism itself. These creditors first create a mafia economy and then a mafia state, left unchecked all power devolves into the hands of these parasitic class of creditors. Ancient cultures were acutely aware that allowing an oligarchic elite to oppress a society through debt peonage destroys not only the financial health of the state, but social cohesion. Debt in ancient societies for this reason was not sacrosanct. In fact, ancient societies from Sumer and Babylon understanding that debts eventually grow faster than the ability to pay, routinely resolve the crisis by wholesale debt forgiveness. I am joined in the studio by Michael Hudson, the author of And Forgive Them From Their Debts, Credit and Redemption, who looks at how past societies freed themselves from the death grip of a class of creditors who, as has happened today, have used their control of the financial system to become de facto rulers. As a former seminarian, I I have to begin uh, with something that I did not understand but that you laid out in the book, and that is the centrality of the forgiveness of debts to the gospel of Jesus Christ.
4: Well, it was basic. Uh, basically uh, the Gospel of Judaism when the Bible was first uh, put together from the returnees of Babylon. Uh, and when the exiles came back from Babylonia, they'd become familiar with uh, the Babylonian practice uh, of what became the Jubilee Year. The word for the Jubilee Year in Hebrew, deror, is a cognate to Babylonian, and the three parts uh, had been proclaimed for 2,000 years in Babylonia. Uh, you cancel the personal debts, not the business debts, only the personal debts. You free the debt bond persons, and you give back the uh, lands that they'd forfeited to creditors. Uh, and. So you can imagine what uh, the uh, Jewish exiles saw in Babylonia. They saw throughout the Near East, whenever a new ruler would come to the throne, the first act they would do would be an economic liberty act, a clean slate, a sort of return to the origin. And they say, we want to begin our reign in balance. And if it's in balance, we wipe out the main cause of imbalance. We cancel all of the debts. And this did not create a crisis, because most of the debts were tax arrears, most of the debts were owed to the palace for either uh, uh, taxes or for uh, the advance of agricultural uh, draft animals or water or other payments. And so uh, it was easy for rulers to cancel the debts when you're canceling debts to yourself. Uh, Much harder when you're canceling debts to the rich people, which is why uh, the rulers of the Near East didn't want an independent oligarchy to develop. Uh, when they canceled the debts, they were preserving the, uh, they were saving the economy from a takeover by the wealthy creditors. Well, when the exiles returned uh, to uh, uh, Jerusalem, they that's when they compiled the whole Bible and they wrote the whole uh, history as if uh, Moses himself had put the laws of Leviticus to cancel the debts every fifty years right in the center of religion because by the time they came back to Israel, uh, if you uh, looked at the early books of the Bible, the kings of Israel were not... Uh, Uh, presented in a very good light. And by that time, uh, in the first millennium, uh, the uh, kings had sort of represented uh, the wealthy uh, classes. So uh, the Jewish solution was to take uh, the debt cancellation out of the hands of uh, kings and put it right in the center of the religion. So that became a fight for the next uh, 400 years, and by the time uh, of Jesus, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that uh, there was a very large, uh, popular uh, pressure for uh, debt forgiveness, because we have midrashes, that is, uh, collections of uh, what the Bible said from the prophets uh, to uh, to the uh, laws of Moses, all the different biblical passages having to do with debt. And I, I, I show this uh, document uh, uh, from uh, Melchizedek uh, uh, in the book. And so what Jesus was doing was picking up uh, the traditional uh, Mosaic law that had uh, gradually uh, been opposed more and more as uh, 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 many Jews got wealthier. Uh, they became Pharisees or Sadducees, and they opposed the whole idea of debt Well, this debt is cancellation. the only...
3: Uh, act by Jesus that can be considered violent is when he overturns the tables of the Pharisees of the moneylenders in the temple. Yes, you talk uh, before we get into the gospel. You, you t- actually talk about uh, how the Ten Commandments themselves are deeply concerned with debt. You cite, "Thou shalt not covet my neighbor's wife," "Thou shalt not steal," "Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain," and you you link this to again. That be an
4: well, v- very often, if uh, a debtor couldn't pay uh, the creditor, he would have to pledge a family member, normally uh, the daughter, or, or even the wife. And uh, very often, uh, uh, there, there was the, usually a sexual relationship involved, because both in the Bible and Babylonian laws, there are all sorts of rules for what to ha- what happens when a uh, master has children by uh, uh, the debt servant. So not coveting the neighbor's wife means don't make a loan to someone who can't pay, because you want to sleep with their wife as a debt servant. Same thing with theft. Uh, it, uh, the idea of taking their property by debt—we will make you a loan, and if you can't pay, we'll take your land. That was considered part of a the theft. And don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, yeah. Meant uh, in a court proceeding is in America, you have to swear on the Bible. You have to swear to be telling the truth. And if you swear that you've made uh, a, uh, a loan and the debtor owes you money, that's in violation of the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 25, uh, saying there's supposed to be a debt cancellation uh, uh, every 50 years. So all of these uh, commandments were designed to promote a an economy that they're continually, it wouldn't be debt free. But when the debts would develop, you would would start over. You'd keep uh, renewing the economy so that it wouldn't polarize. Because if you don't cancel the debts, then the economy does what you said in your opening remarks. If you don't cancel the debts, the economy polarizes between creditors and debtors. And the creditors take over first the land, then uh, the the, uh, economy, and then the government, and then religion. And they uh, rewrite uh, the law, history, and religion in their own uh, self-interest, which is what was happening in the time of Jesus.
3: Well, we see with the end of the Roman Empire the inability to carry out a jubilee and the consequences. But before I ask that, I'll ask the fundamental question, which I'm sure you've been asked before, is if in ancient society they knew there was a jubilee, why would they lend money? Well, that's a trick
4: question because most uh, debts were not the result of people lending money. Uh, the preparation for this book was five uh, colloquia uh, that I held over a period of 20 years uh, organized by Harvard University. And uh, we had a seriologist's uh, study uh, with all of the cuneiform documents. So we have the debt documents. Uh, we have the legal cases. And we found that 75% of the debts in Babylonia weren't loans at all. They were tax arrears. They were money that was owed to the palace, and you couldn't pay because the crops failed, or there was a flood, or there was a drought, or uh, people got sick. And so uh, they they weren't loans at all. They were arrears, and especially this was the case in Jesus' time. People owed taxes to Rome, and if they couldn't pay, then the tax collector would say, "Okay, you couldn't pay. I'm uh, I'm going to take your land, and I'm going to make you a." Uh, uh, a debt uh, servant. Uh, that that was uh, really it. So uh, when uh, Hillel, uh, representing uh, the wealthy. Uh, Uh, Pharisees, said, well, who would make a loan if you think it'll uh, be canceled, Uh, was just misrepresenting the situation in something that sounded plausible until you look at the facts and then you realize that uh, he was just acting as the lawyer, uh, the spokesman for the creditors, trying to distract attention from how the economy actually worked.
3: So let's go to the end of Rome, because now that 50-year cycle or whatever it is, that uh, ability to restart Society, free themselves from debt peonage, create economic equilibrium is no longer honored. And what happens?
4: Well, then, the credit, uh, if you read uh, the histories of Rome written by Livy, by Dionysius of uh, 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 Halicarnassus, by Diodorus. Every Roman historian attributed the fall of the Roman uh, Republic to the greed of creditors, ending up killing. Every politician who represented the debtors or who who, uh, opposed the monopolization of the land was murdered. And that happened from the fifth century all the way down to the, uh, uh, to the time uh, of uh, Julius Caesar. So
3: there the two brothers. What were they? The, the Gracchi brothers right. in 133 BC. Killed by the Senate.
4: Yes. Right. Who took? Uh, uh, who all together, as in the killing of Caesar, took the uh, uh, the uh, benches and pushed the, uh, the plebeian uh, advocates of uh, land redistribution and debt cancellation, pushed them over the edge of the Tarpeian rock to, to fall.
3: And what happens? Economically, within Rome, as an example, because I think you know we are very much in now in a society that sees the debt as sacrosanct—that you can't uh, you can't forgive. Yeah, what happened to Rome? And then we'll talk about us.
4: Well, by not canceling the debts, uh, people ended up as uh, uh, debt servants to the creditors. Uh, They were put uh, basically in slave uh, barracks. The population basically plunged. Uh, uh, The money economy dried up because there was no more money. The creditors had it all. And you had maybe the the Of the Roman population, spending the little money that there was on luxury imports, and uh, the rest of the economy reverted to barter. So uh, you have uh, barter is the final stage uh, of the monetary system. You begin with economies being credit economies all throughout uh, Sumerian uh, history, Babylonia. These were uh, you it operated on credit, and you'd pay the debts when the harvest was in, on the threshing floor. Then you had a money economy. Money gradually was a means of paying debts. And finally, you had no money uh, in Rome left. Uh, the rich people didn't want to pay their taxes, just like today. Uh, when you, uh, I think they made Donald Trump emperor in uh, uh, the first <laughs> century, and uh, he cut all the taxes on the rich, and so there was no money coming in, and so they had to debase the coinage, and uh, uh, it ended up. Everyone worked for barter, and you had feudalism. So the, re- the end result of not canceling the debt was feudalism in Western Europe. And there was only a survival in uh, the Byzantine uh, eastern half of the Roman Empire that did have the debt cancellations, that did have uh, the uh, constraints on creditors taking land and on uh, the large landowners preventing uh, what had happened in Western Europe.
3: And what you argue in the book is that the difference between then and now is that uh, today's governments, globally, have essentially been completely seized by creditors, and there's no countervailing force.
4: You could say that that's what distinguishes Western civilization, uh, what's called Western civilization, really gr- Greeks and Roman, from Near Eastern, the Bronze Age takeoff. And in the Bronze Age, in the third millennium B.C., in Sumer and Babylonia, you have all of the elements of enterprise and commerce developed. Uh, and you didn't have uh, interest-bearing debt brought to the Mediterranean until the 8th century BC by uh, Levantine traders in uh, Greece and in Italy. And they brought in- interest-bearing debt, but they didn't have kings. They had, as you put it, mafia, uh, mafiosi leaders. And uh, so these local uh, uh, chieftains and later warlords uh, would take the practice of charging interest without the debt cancellation and from the very beginning you didn't have the circular time anymore you, you had a linear time and a linear time means you can't go back to the beginning you can't have a clean slate
3: you can't wipe down the debt. We'll, we'll come back to that. It's called Goldman Sachs, right? <laughs> uh, when we come back we'll continue our conversation about debt peonage and forgiveness with author Michael Hudson. Welcome back to On Contact. We continue our conversation about debt forgiveness with author and professor Michael Hudson. Before I go into the German miracle, quote-unquote miracle, uh, you point out that the linguistic origins of the word sin and debt are the same.
4: They're the same not only in the Indo-European languages, Schuld in uh, uh, German, I'm schuldig, means either I am guilty or I owe money, but also in Hebrew and in uh, Babylonian uh, and all these languages. And uh, the reason is that it's not sinful to run a debt, just the opposite. If you've created an offense, if you've uh, killed somebody or injured them and you owe them money, uh, uh, you... uh, uh the, instead of having a uh, vindictive uh fight among families you uh, a fine was levied and the fine that was levied to, uh, to make reparation for the injury that you've caused was called uh the shuld uh or or uh, the debt so uh the the key of the debt and sin uh, metonymy is not that uh, uh, not sin. It begins with it was a payment. It was a debt for having inflicted personal injury. In uh, uh, English, you call this "vergelt," uh, was a Germanic uh, word for uh, injuring uh, somebody, the man price. And uh, in, prim- in uh, primitive society, the only kind of debts you really had were interpersonal debts uh, for uh, for injury and. The The idea was not to uh, impoverish society at all, but to prevent uh, feuds and feud justice um, from uh, taking place. And even then, if uh, somebody had committed a a sin uh, and they couldn't pay, they were exiled. But when a new king would come to power, the first thing the king would do would be to uh, proclaim an amnesty, and the amnesty was let the exiles return because everybody needed population and uh, they don't owe any money. So the uh, the amnesty that you find in all Indo-European society, in uh, uh, Sumerian and Babylonian society and Jewish society, uh, all was the idea of amnesty, meaning uh, we've got to have a clean slate. We can't just uh, uh, let people either be exiled or fall into poverty or fall into uh, debt slavery. Uh, we've got to restore freedom. And that's why they were called either uh, economic liberty acts, uh, because they liberated uh, everyone from uh, the sin of uh, payment uh, obligation, uh, or they were just called uh, restorations of order. Uh, you restore order so society can take place without all of these uh, problems from the past. and. You had a It was like a New Year celebration, although it was different. And uh, everybody would have a big celebration, and, and the new king would take the throne. There'd be a coronation ceremony, and everything would be fine again, and you could start the whole cycle all over again. But
3: as you point out, Western society becomes linear. Ancient society was cyclical like Asian society. Yep. And like Greece, ancient Greece, thought of time as cyclical. Um, so in the linear society where, as you said, in essence, these debts, no matter how far they go back, look at Haiti, didn't pay off its debt till 1944. Yep, that was a uh, disaster. for the only successful slave revolt in human history. Yep. Um, and, and so this understanding of restoring the equilibrium is gone. And yet we have modern examples of how debt forgiveness is economically beneficial, and that's Germany.
4: Yes, uh, when the Allies uh, uh, took over and reformed Germany in 1947, 1948, uh, the first thing they did was cancel all the debts, and that was easy because the debts were owed to people who'd been Nazis during the war. So but they canceled all the debts except the debts that employers owed to their workforce, uh, and except except for basic working balances in the banks. And this was called the German economic miracle, uh, and. Any country can have an economic miracle by canceling the debts. uh, Because imagine uh, how much Americans could afford to buy if they didn't have to pay their debts. If you didn't have the student loan debt and the mortgage debt and all the debts that you mentioned earlier, uh, imagine how many goods and services they could buy. You'd have you'd have a, uh, a recovery. You'd you'd have an economic boom. And the reason you're having a uh, recession of labor right now is because so much more and more money has to be paid for debt service that people don't have enough money to buy the goods and services that employ labor. So there's uh, uh, wages really are not going up very much. Uh, stores are closing. All over uh, New York City, certainly, and uh, you're. you're, uh, This is the price that we pay for uh, pretending that equilibrium is paying all of your debts and keeping. And uh, equilibrium is not paying your debts. You cannot have uh, uh, economic balance if uh, the debts keep mounting up and up and up compound interest and the Babylonians recognize this in the second millennium BC we have their economic models in the economic model the mathematical models the Babylonians used are superior to any mathematical model used uh, today in any university because the model is quite simple on the one hand they calculated how fast does a debt grow at compound interest? Then they calculated how fast do herds of animals grow? And it's an S-curve. It tapers off. How fast does the economy grow? And you can very easily see that the debts grow faster than the economy. And if you don't cancel the debts, then the whole economy is going to fall into debt to a creditor class uh, and is going to fall apart. Uh, And today, people will will forecast GDP, how is it growing, how's the economy growing. But they don't look at debt, and they don't say, wait a minute, if the debt's growing, how are people going to pay interest charges on this debt and amortization and penalty rates that are larger than interest, and at the same time buy goods and services? It's so obvious that there's a contradiction in this uh, that People get Nobel Prizes for saying, let's assume the whole economy operates on barter. And there's no no debt, no credit. We're not going to talk about debt. We're not going to talk about money. And so uh, the economic models that are taught in the universities are as if we're in a barter economy without debt. And that's why uh, they're wrong all the time.
3: Well, government debt alone within 10 years will be a trillion dollars on just paying interest. Uh Just interest.
4: Yes, uh, the government has an, It doesn't have to run into debt. It can simply print the money, as uh, occurred in the Civil War with the greenbacks. All this borrowing is unnecessary. So basically, uh, in the creditor-run society, they say, first of all, uh, you have to cut our taxes so you don't have money. Uh, and now that you've cut our taxes and you're running a deficit, you have to borrow the money from us and pay us interest instead of printing the money yourself.
3: What are the consequences? I mean, it, it, it seems that we're very far down this road. What are what are the consequences of not addressing the seizure of power by global creditors?
4: Well, you have a, uh, an example in front of you in Greece uh, and in Europe. Europe- The eurozone is being turned into a dead zone because, number one, the government doesn't run deficits to spend money into the economy. That means that the only money that uh, Europeans can get have to be borrowed from the banks at rising interest rates, and uh, more and more interest has to be paid. So the governments uh, have to pay by selling off the public domain and privatizing it all, Thatcherism. Uh, And the companies have to pay more and more credit so they can't afford to reinvest in uh, capital. Uh, investment, uh, you have basically uh, the road to stagnation. And that's the road that uh, the United States is taking uh, ever since uh, President Obama decided to save uh, the banks, not the economy. You, uh, something has to give if uh, the economy can't pay the debts. And uh, in, ni- in 2008,
3: uh, either- uh, the- Let me just the- interject by saying that you were one of the few economists who saw 2008 coming.
4: Using the Babylonian model. <laughs> uh-huh. it, was, it was obvious that if you, uh, if the junk mortgage loans, uh, you know, his Obama had promised to write down the loans to the ability to pay. But then uh, he called the uh, creditors to the White House, the bankers, and said, Don't worry, I'm the only guy standing between you and the mob with pitchforks. Uh, Hillary called them uh, deplorables, but uh, Obama called his voters the mob with pitchforks. And he said, My loyalty's with you, you know, I'm going to stand by you. And uh, he left the debts in place he didn't write them down and the result is uh, uh, the economy's been moving into stagnation ever since because it's carrying this huge debt burden that is preventing uh, people from using the income they earn to buy goods and services they But you will turn on CNN and
3: they'll tell you the economy's booming. It is booming
4: for the 1%. And uh, when economists talk about the economy, they talk about Wall Street. To them, the economy is the banks. To a banker, the economy is the banks. Uh, But to a debtor, uh, they're saying, wait a minute. Uh, uh, You may call us deplorables, but that's because we have to pay all the money for our our junk mortgages, uh, for high-priced housing that are bid up by the banks, uh, for the student loans. Uh, we We can't do it. Uh, So the question is, are you going to look at the economy from the vantage point of the creditors or the debtors? And in antiquity, uh, uh, the rulers of the Near East looked at the economy. In terms of the debtors, because you needed them to serve in the army, you needed them to pay taxes, uh, and the creditors' uh, uh, political program was not to pay taxes and to uh, to, uh, make loans and take the uh, cultivators as their own uh, servants, uh, on uh, debt servants, and so they couldn't serve in the army. So it would have been economic and political and military suicide not to have canceled the debts uh, in Babylonia. That's why it was so natural. That's why every single society, and I document in the book, uh, uh, every society canceled the debts. Uh, and yet this is not uh, brought out by, there hasn't been an economic history of antiquity except for the uh, uh, colloquia that we've published out of Harvard.
3: So. W- Where's it going to go? I mean, they're they're certainly, with the creditors in charge, which they are, you cannot vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs Uh in the American political system. It doesn't matter whether it's Obama or Trump or Bush or anyone else. Where, what is that going to lead to?
4: Well, it's, it's helpful to look at what happened with the Roman Empire. It's helpful to look at what happened in Greece, uh, or Latvia, or Portugal, or Spain, or Italy. They're all debt strapped. There, there's unemployment rising, there's emigration, uh, people have to leave the country in order to get a job. Uh, the population uh, is declining, the, uh, the number of children, the reproduction rates are declining. You have exactly the same shrinkage that you had in the Roman Empire when the creditors also took over and uh, they tried militarily to uh, make their colonies and uh, uh, countries they uh, conquered pay but when there was no one else to conquer the economy collapsed from within and uh, that uh, in terms of the structure that's the way we're going today what's
3: the difference then between the crisis we're barreling towards now in 2008
4: they look identical
3: but but is there could we argue that Uh, they can't lower interest rates anymore, uh, and so the escape mechanism may not be there.
4: Uh, I don't see any escape mechanism. I, the lowering interest rates was simply to inflate real est- housing prices right. and the stock prices. And that's that uh, inflating the stock prices and lowering the interest rates means people can't get a safe way of saving for their retirement. So, uh, uh, th- and the pension funds go broke. So, there go people's pensions. They're not going to be uh, the old people are going to be suffering, especially as in the case of Greece, again, and as was the case in antiquity. So everywhere you look, uh, in putting the interest of the creditors who are the 1% over the 99%, the economy is con- uh, committing financial suicide.
3: Well, you did that in, what was your book, The Host? Killing the Host. Killing the Host. Killing the Host. Yes. How uh, uh, Finance
4: good. Capitalism is Taking Over Industrial Capitalism. Yeah, a very
3: important book, thank you, thank you, Michael. That was author and economist Michael Hudson, who wrote and forgive them their debts, credit, and redemption. Thanks,
4: thank you.
1: Well, I think you can understand why I want to play that today. Chris, you still there? He's probably stepped away, maybe had it on mute listening. Uh, I'm, I'll post that on uh, the show description today. Let me uh, tell you where I found it. I found it over on Michael Rivera's site, I believe the originating. Link here is investmentwatch.com. Yeah, investmentwatchblog.com. Christopher Hedges, the uh, journalist of some certainly repute here over the last few years. They've marginalized him like they have. Gerald Salente and everybody else uh, that comes out, Michael Pinto. All these guys are saying, well, I used to be on all these programs. They won't invite me on anymore. Of course, uh, we know why. Christopher Hedge has been marginalized, too. I think he was, he was prominent as a more of a reporter back in the Clinton Clinton era geez almighty hopefully we're going into the anti-clinton era regardless that economist's name was michael hudson uh i'm not familiar with him uh as i said before we played the clip i listened to it last night late before i went to bed and found a lot of the things he talked about there on my mind and so I wanted to play it today. I thought there was some things in there I'd never been exposed to before. And I, and there's a lot of information in that 30 minutes. And I could tell by listening to it a second time, I got more out of it in, in context, uh, listening to it just now with you guys. Most of you, I'm sure the first time I'll post it over on the show description on cast box today, but if you want to go search it out, it's uh, over on investmentwatchblog.com. dot com. Hey Shane, how you doing out in Silicon Valley today?
2: Hello, Roger. Thanks for posting that. Um, that's very
0: intriguing information.
1: He had a lot of Thank stuff you. in there. He 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 covered a lot of ground. Okay, in in several really key areas that we particularly pay attention to here. And so when you get new information like that from a reliable source that's got the historical documents that he's been studying for 20 years, uh, you know, you kind of listen. You know, it's like, remember when we were younger in that TV commercial, E.F. Hutton? Remember, they'd be all this big restaurant, and all of a sudden, everything would just go quiet. And when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Well, when this guy speaks, you ought to be listening. All right. And I'd like to get a hold of his book. I'm sure we'll discuss it more tomorrow, especially with some of the biblical things that he talked about in there, connections and and perspectives I've never even considered before. So I'm sure Brent's going to have a few things to say about it. But I'll post it today. I think that you'll want to probably... Probably go back and, and watch it yourself. The book is called, And Forgive Them for Their Debts. Lending. Uh, I I was killing, pardon I me, I was
0: Shane? Killing
2: the, uh, I thought I
1: was killing the host. Well, well, evidently, he's written more than than one book. Uh, killing the Host was a previous book from the impression I got. Because this one, the latest one, is called, And Forgive Them for Their Debts. Colon. Lending, foreclosure, and redemption from from Bronze Age finance to the Jubilee Year. Evidently, that's the title of the book. Uh so anyway, uh I, I know we got a few. Let's uh, see, we're well, you, eh, close to the top of the second hour, but um, as as I said, I was so impressed with him with his stature and his background and with the information that he presented there uh I wanted to just go ahead and play the video instead of just talking about it and telling you guys to go watch it on your own uh so that's a that's an excellent resource I I'm sure we'll delve into that more
0: and spread it out
1: yeah yeah well that's he's it, 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 there were several things that really caught my ear in there and i because i'm sitting here watching the video you guys just heard the audio but he was talking about he he uh, gave him the accolades for predicting the 2008 financial crisis and he said yeah it was easy we used the babylonian model (laughs) and i thought well hell guess what they used the babylonian model too (laughs) except they knew what they were doing and nobody else did in the economic range except this guy and the the guy the big short guys and uh you know a few other people um and it's funny i can remember back then Shane, 2003 uh is when they really started pumping that bubble and, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and 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 if people remember back about 15 17 years ago and the one thing that always comes to my mind when i think about it is that series of commercials and they must have ran the damn things three or three times or more an hour, okay? Ditech, remember Ditech? And, they, and they'd have the commercial yeah. where the, oh, damn, I lost another one to Ditech, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that, when, when that whole thing went under, there was 28 of those companies, and they were all under one umbrella company, and they all went bankrupt in the same day
0: wow i'm in awe wow.
1: i just, i remember you know and as you look back and you can start putting these things together and i knew what they were doing i knew that when they're throwing money around like that and giving those no doc loans and here let's see can you frost this mirror oh you can frost this mirror how about this mortgage here Okay, and when they're going to those tactics and links right there they're they're pumping bubbles all right, and I recognize it i tried I tried to get my mother to sell our family home back in that time, and she wouldn't she wouldn't have any part of listening to it I, and she wishes like hell she'd listen to me now, okay. Because there's no way in you know in in, in general, you know a long time it's going to be worth what we could have sold it for back in about o four o five o six, but that's water mm-hmm. under the bridge. Lessons learned are like bridges burned, Shane. You only have yes. to learn them but once.
0: Hmm. So I have a question then. Roger.
1: Oh, good! I love How questions.
0: How do you feel about the, um, the Dow? Do you think it's going to increase or decrease?
1: I don't really care as much about the Dow as I care about the increase in the price of gold and the cyber coins. Now, there is some correlation there, and it's interesting that you asked the question because I was noticing right before the show and let me refresh this here but I don't know if you noticed it or not or if you pay attention to these things but the price of gold went over 1260 today and what mm. what has now been be uh, what is what is unusual is f- here as of late the Dow and the price of gold have been moving in tandem When one would go up, the other would go up. And that's pretty uncharacteristic of their general relationship, okay? But today, gold is up, and it's back up around approaching 1265. It got up towards that area, but the Dow is down 307. So they're moving in opposite directions today. There's a lot of very interesting things going on from what happened yesterday, evidently. There's a flight out of the stock market and into the bond market so people are pulling some of their money out of equities and sticking them over in the bond market evidently from what i can see and the bond market is going up here especially the last 2 days but gold is up and that's one of the real good canary in the coal mines i don't pay as much yeah i don't pay as much attention to silver i probably ought to be looking at it too but i just mi- mainly uh, concentrate on gold some people say that the silver will lead gold in the spike that's coming but they'll they'll pretty much go in tandem i think people uh, especially the big money people that are that don't understand what's really going on some of the institutional investors etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, uh, they are they'll always look at gold in times like these because it's historical Um, so, uh, I think those of us who hold carrot bar coins are going to be real pleased, uh, uh, as this gold price spikes, it's going to get to some level and it's going to turn up and, uh, uh, they'll fight it every step of the way, obviously, but we're still going to start to see some of those upward moves. And we got a very interesting year ahead of us next year, Chris, what'd you think of my little video there?
2: Well, I thought that was most intriguing, enlightening, educational, and informational at this particular time of the year, and that Jubilee concept of debt forgiveness that often discharge is uh, preserved in the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and some of the other uh, laws that we have today, so it appears there is nothing new Under
1: the sun. Well, you could see, I know there was something new under the sun here of a couple of years ago as they reformulated the Bankruptcy Act and the bankruptcy laws and intentionally excluded student loan debt.
2: That was rather special and noteworthy. And for Shane, I really have to caution that we're on the cusp of the huge pop of this incredible bubble of. Deception that they've blown up and held up and patched up duct tape, bubble gum, and anything else baling wire. They could try to create the pretext that things are reliable when they're anything other than.
1: Well, I I would float the idea that the pop has already happened, and that what you're seeing is the after effects, and we'll continue to see everything start turning down. Now you got to remember, and. Many of us uh, have a natural tendency, I think, to thinking of things like this in terms of black and white, like it's going to be this way yesterday and this way tomorrow. And it doesn't happen like that in this area, evidenced by the stock market crash was in October of 1929, and the bankruptcy wasn't declared until March the 9th of 1933, okay? So we've got... But the advantage that we've really got here is we know what's happening, we understand the structure, and we've got prior knowledge. We've got, as I've said a number of times, what we've all got collectively and what I strive to put out there as much as possible and invite anybody who wants to, you know, call in and and discuss aspects of it, but what we've got is what every successful conqueror in the history of the world has ever had, and that no matter when they lived, and that is you had a spy in the enemy's camp. You know what's coming. Mm-hmm. We know what's coming. It's a foregone conclusion. You just heard this notable economist who spent an entire career studying this stuff, 20 years of which they studied the actual old documents to the point where they could tell you on a percentage basis how many of the court cases that came to court dealt with the loans that were made from individuals or, 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 or arrears that were owed to government. Now, we've never had access to that kind of information before with that amount of precision.
2: Those who refuse to learn the lessons from the past are doomed to repeat them.
1: Well, you you know how John said that. I think I've said it before. He said those who do learn their lessons from the past can invoke them over those who don't in half the time.
2: <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's a very brilliant point.
1: <laughs> Pretty accurate. As I said, the guy said he complimented him on calling the '08 crisis. So I used the Babylonian debt model, and I sat here and chuckled to myself. And so did they.
2: Indeed,
1: I'm sure they did. They're a very devious group. I mean, man, when you put this in a historical context, and you can look back from the information that he brought us uh, and and overlay it, I mean, come on, man. These guys are just absolute. Well, as, 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 again, John, quote John Benson, the late John Benson, they know history and they know the Bible one hell of a lot better than we do. Wow. So that's what we try and do is search out this old information. I got to, you know, here at the end of the year, I guess, I, I think that. I think that we're doing some real cutting edge work here through the program and through the listeners and the things we're finding out. We've got we've got had all kinds of cutting edge stuff on here in the last year. First people to know, to my knowledge to bring C sixty to any any kind of a wider type audience. Uh, we've we've got Brian Howard and what he's uncovered with his birth certificate stuff. Absolute total new ground in the patriot area. That in my entire time in this, as involved as I've been, and most of you, chris, you too, we've never had that information that when you come out of the womb, they take this piece of paper and go over and do it in this vital statistics thing that's and put it in a safe that is armed by armed guards We've never had that information before. what that tells you is what the system is, okay uh, uh, this stuff with the common law birth certificate, nobody's ever really plowed that ground to any extent before that's new. Now we're, you know, I mean, I, I feel like we're really covering some real cutting edge ground here on basic proofs and understandings and we'll get the formula right. And here down the line, don't know when do know it's coming at some point down the line more people are going to be interested in what we've got to say and the information we've got to convey and the sanity with which it brings them.
0: So in actuality, I believe um, in order to get out of the matrix,
2: you need to get into it. I don't know how that really works,
1: but well, I'm not sure how it works either Shane, but I like getting out of it. I like being out of it, but that doesn't mean that you can't go back in and participate in it. It just means you have the option of getting back out of it and that those jurisdictional nexuses don't control you on a total 24/7 days in year time period. In other words, you're not a piece of property anymore. That's the most critical thing here is that you're not their property. They do not have a property right in you anymore. Once you file that paper.
0: Only mm. in America.
1: No, it's this is a global thing, man. I, this is, I, I swear to God, it's the beast of yeah. revelation. It's mystery Babylon. It's what's talked about. So in, 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 in nondescript terms and labels there all through the last book of the of the basic instructions before leaving earth.
0: Mm. Revelations eighteen?
1: Yes, sir. Well that and the rest of the book too. I mean, what does he call it? The whore. The horror of Babylon. The beast of Babylon, Mystery Babylon. All those labels are put on it. And and so back then in Babylon, Babylon. If you go back to the uh, what do they call those things? Were a concordance. If you go back to the concordance and you look under Babylon, Babylon was confusion. That's the word you they. That's right, confused Zion. That's the word you associate with Babylon, right? Well, why was Babylon in confusion? Because they all spoke different languages. All right. Well, now we've got mystery Babylon. So we've got confusion with people speaking, speaking different languages. But what you don't know is the languages, the difference they're speaking is legal and colloquial. And you've got a whole system that's a mystery to people because they don't understand these mysteries of this legal language that's been twisted and turned and had opposite definitions imputed into words. There's the mystery to me in mystery Babylon. Wow You see, that's the thing about this information, Shane, that's so powerful is it allows you to answer all the questions. I mean, you can take the tools we teach here, those basics of law, and when you understand that word person, the fact that which, it's where your, your rights are signed and your duties owed, and you get some of these other basic words right, you can plow through any of their laws and not be tricked. That right there is your basic tools in the toolbox to undo the structure of control that they put over you.
2: There are two forms of person. One, the natural man person, and the dead corporate fictitious entity posed as a corporate.
1: Well, hold on. It's not just a corporate person. It can be a trust. It can be a partnership, general or limited. It can be an LLC. See, we get too exclusionary on this corporate. They've made us corporations. That's not true. They've made you a damn piece of property. They've got a property ownership right in you. Okay, now what Chris is talking about and referred to in the law, and this is what John taught us, is that the reason that they call human persons individuals is because that separation of person where you receive your rights and to whom you owe your duties are always in the same entity when it's a person. When it's a human person, the rights and the duties are always in the same entity. As opposed to, for example, with a corporation, the rights and the duties are separated. Okay? The corporation has the right to go out and do all this stuff, but you can't do anything but fine a corporation, you can't put it in jail. You could probably yank its charter, but before they do that, they separate the duties because if whatever the offense is heinous enough, they can penetrate the corporate veil, and now they go after the board of directors. So the duties and the rights in a corporation are not in the same entity. Conniving. Well, no, this is just basic legal stuff. That's why, you know, the talk that uh, I've had several people comment on, and I guess I should comment on it a little bit here, too, uh, the science of law. And it's on YouTube. I did that show years ago. Somebody stuck it up there. I didn't do it. But I've had people find the show because they stumbled on it on YouTube, and and it was was so provocative to them and so eye-opening that they searched up the program and called in okay but uh i i had a request from one of the listeners to put the two shows i did on that very topic here on our platform let me uh, clear my throat for a second on our platform a while back and i went to look for them to stick them over on Castbox, and uh Paul had had to clean out the archives, and I couldn't find the shows. So if I can get my hands on those shows, I'm going to stick them up on CastBox, because those are real, real good shows on this very minutia, Shane, that you're talking about is these little tidbits of information. That why is an individual a human person always referred to as an individual in the law? It's because the rights and the duties are inseparable in the same entity. So but uh, but I guarantee you you ain't going to ever find any any patriot that knows that or any hardly any attorney either cuz they just don't teach it in law school anymore. I thought I had somebody join us here and they're not there. Somebody must have called in a wrong number and Beat the hell out of Dodge when they heard us talking about all that stuff. So that's why all that stuff's so important, Shane, is to learn those basics and the minutiae because that little one factoid information right there can open up vistas of understanding to you that are clouded up by our Patriot community's uh, lack of knowledge, really. I mean, I'm not putting myself out as some, you know, great teacher. It's just that I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, study under somebody who was.
2: And in their convoluted war, art, word, term world, the word term individual, and I think it's under the Privacy Act definitions where they hide a lot of the definitions they use in the other acts of deception, means a 14th Amendment U.S. citizen.
1: Well, I don't know how. You see, you know, listen, (laughs) that's why I try and stress the conceptual side of this, because of all that crap that they do right there. And it doesn't matter how they've turned it around or what it looks like. If you understand the concept, you understand what's going on, and they can't override that because that's basic recognized legal concepts for thousands of years. They can twist it, turn it, change it, try and redefine it, do all of the crap they do, but they can't change that reference back to those original concepts. And the proof of the pudding of that is when people have submitted an affidavit to the Secretary of State. Not one in seven years has been rebutted or denied. Not one, to my knowledge. Now they've and been. The
2: point is, well, because if you rebut, deny, aver, and rebuke all their assertions, presumptions, and assumptions, they are left with nothing to hold over you. The
1: the only thing they've got, Chris, and I mentioned it the other day, the biggest defense they've got is that BS bluff letter they send out. That's their biggest defense. I got one. (laughs) You got a what, defense?
0: I got a bluff letter.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, there's only a small percentage of people that got them, but they tried that for a while as, I guess, a last ditch. They didn't do it initially. They waited a couple of years before they started sending some of those out so you know that finally they're back there going, what are we going to do about this? Well, we'll do this, and they send out this letter where it's not the same letter every time, but it's the same first paragraph every time.
2: It appears.
1: <laughs> it appears by what you've ready. submitted. Well it appears to who? To a Edomite damn lion, slave and thief? Well, I don't care what it appears like to some fraudster. I care what it appears like historically, lawfully, and legally their Brandeis Law School graduate. I think that when when we when we get this thing turned around we ought to uh uh seize the Brandeis Law School and make it a Christian college.
2: Hmm. Abbeville
1: <laughs> What type of Christian college? One that tr- preaches true gospel instead of Edomite legalese crap. Um so gold's still popping around twelve sixty, and we're now down three hundred and forty eight on the Dow. Uh, so, I'm
2: curious, uh, time is nine one one.
1: Do you like Chris? What about nine one one?
2: I said curiously, the time when you said that was nine one one.
1: Okay, well, oh, oh, out there in Vegas, Vegas land. Uh, okay. Let's see here before we ran out run out of too much time. Cause these are so, somewhat lengthy articles. This first one is pretty interesting, but I, I'll just go ahead and read a little bit of it. This is what I've been promoting all week on low Saturnalia, the Roman roots of Christmas. Have you ever heard this stuff before? Uh, Shane, I, I don't believe I'd ever heard this before. So it was interesting to me and I think you guys will find it interesting also Christmas Hanukkah. Kwanzaa, whatever your reason for the season, most of the December holiday traditions that we celebrate today can be traced back to the ancient Roman holiday of Saturnalia with her healthy dose of inspiration also coming from the Vikings, in parentheses, from tree decorations, wreaths, ornaments, boughs of holly, caroling, and it says in parentheses, and I'll get to this later, albeit with more clothes and less rude songs these days, gift-giving and even gingerbread men, most of what we identify as Christmas has roots going back thousands of years. So what was Saturnalia? The fact is the Romans loved festivals and officially, Saturnalia commemorated the winter solstice as well as honoring Saturn, the god of agriculture, wealth, and liberation. Most Roman holidays were never confined to a single day, and Saturnalia was a week-long celebration lasting from the 17th to either the 23rd or maybe the 24th of December those little orgies they had, described by the Latin poet Catullus as the best of days, unquote. It was the most popular holiday of the Russian calendar, attested only by the fact that many of its traditions still survive to this day. Its exact date of origin is unknown, though references to the holiday are made as early as 4th century B.C. Like other holidays and festivals at its core, Saturnalia was a religious observance, albeit most of the religious aspects were the only observed on the first day. Saturnalia began on the 17th of December at the Temple of Saturn on Capitol Hill. Oh, excuse me, Capitoline, Capitoline Hill.
2: Capitoline Hill.
1: Same, same. I guess that's one of those there in seven hills of Rome. The emperor consuls, prominent senators, as well as members of the nobility, would be in attendance. Much of the public was also gathered around to watch and wait for the commencement of the festivities. The feet of the statue of Saturn were wrapped in woolen strips, which were removed for the festival. Fertility rituals and sacrifices were made, after which either the emperor Or consuls would turn to the crowd and shout, Lo Saturnalia! The celebration could now begin. Lo Saturnalia and the world turned upside down. Much like Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, the Romans had their own greetings of the season. The first words were pronounced either I, O, or Yo, I, O, or Yo. With both being deemed technically correct, potato, potato, it could mean just about anything, and was often shouted by revelers in the midst of committing acts of naughtiness. Of hi, naughtiness, yo, hi o yo, oh, yo silver, and uh, so during Saturday, your courts, you'll like this, Chris. During Saturnalia, courts were suspended, as were many laws. Roles were also usually reversed, with slaves becoming masters and the masters having to serve them. The extent of this varied from house to house. It is most likely that while servants did not have their own formal banquet with the masters serving them, Although they did, the food was already prepared. In other words, the masters didn't prepare the food. Not all emperors were so enthusiastic about the week of mischief. This rather stoic Augustus, the rather stoic Augustus, attempted to have Saturnalia reduced to a single day. Even the notorious party animal Caligula tried to reduce the celebrations to three days because Saturnalia was so universally popular. Neither of these attempts met with any sort of success. In the end, both Augustus and Caligula were obliged to yield to the will of the people. The week of naughtiness also saw a number of traditions, many of which can still carry on to this day. These include, but are not limited to, the Saturnalia tree, the wreath, and the boughs of holly. The modern Christmas tree has origins in both Norse and Roman traditions, while the Norsemen used evergreens as they were viewed as a symbol of eternal life. The Romans used just about any tree that was growing that they could cut. (laughs) That doesn't say that. I added that. And they also did not chop down the tree and place them in their homes. They came from Germany during the Renaissance and had been attributed to Martin Luther. That came from Germany during the Renaissance, bringing them into your house. Because the winter solstice was about the rebirth of the sun, the sun god Sol Invictus got his share of attention as well. Many of the ornaments decorating Saturnalia trees were the shape of stars or suns. Imagine of the double-faced god Janus were also, images of Janus were also popular, as well as gold and silver Colored orbs, much like today. Food, in particular cookies and shaped biscuits, were also used to decorate trees. These were often shaped like suns, moons, children, a sign of fertility, or animals. And yes, the Christmas gingerbread man also has Saturnalia origins. And while trees remained outdoors, people decorated their home with lots of greenery, symbols of life, fertility, and the harvest. Streamers of red and gold were often interlaced with these. Wreaths were also hung from doorways and from public buildings. Of interesting note, the hanging of mistletoe is actually a Nordic tradition that dates back to ancient Scandinavia, and to the myth of Baldur. The burning of the Yule log is also Nordic, as is the term Yule Tide, which dates to ancient German paganism. People also decorated themselves with lots of greenery, as well as copious amounts of costume jewelry, like Mardi Gras, I guess. Laurel crowns were often worn by both men and women alike. Such dress and spectacle often roiled into the next ancient tradition, the singing of carols. Christmas caroling today is a far more subdued affair than it was in ancient Rome. During the Saturnalia week, Groups of people would go from house to house, beating drums, playing their pipes, and singing any number of songs. These carolers, as they were called, were usually drunk and were often naked. Often naked. Hell, they may take that tradition back up in our place if it isn't too cold. Sadly, the practice, they're running around half naked now. Sadly, the practice of nude caroling has fallen out of favor in recent years. I blame it on the December climate in North America and much of Europe, which makes naked prancing a less than merry experience. The giving of gifts on the third day of Saturnalia. Note the third day. Hey. That could be a song on the third day of Saturnalia. Somebody write that down. Nineteen of December was the signal area. The term "the signal area" refers to pottery or wax figures that were often given as gifts. The term came, yeah. The term came to encompass all Saturnalia presents not just wax figures and pottery despite the attempt to reduce saturnalia to a single day emperor augustus was quite fond of gagging gifts as was emperor vestavius the poet Martial describes a variety of gifts given during the signal area that's the gift giving within the big day much like today, they vary greatly between the cheap and the expensive. Some examples he listed include perfume, sausage, pipes, books, an axe, a parrot, tableware, cutlery, slaves, and exotic animals.
2: D, D, D. It,
1: it goes on, and this is kind of a lengthy article, uh, but uh, it, it it's pretty. I'll tell you what, I'll 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 stop reading about there. It goes on for a while, and I'll stick it up in the show description today, along with the uh, with the interview there. What do you think about that, Chris? I'll breeze through here, see if there's anything else. Well,
2: well, Roger, I was finding it highly humorous that it was so on point, apropos, and uh hit me right between the eyes because I have a, a friend of mine that I had uh, gifted with, <laughs> surprisingly, some perfume and uh, a couple of little, little baubles. And I also, because she is uh, about around my age and her children were concerned about her climbing up on ladders and uh, cabinets and stuff to change light bulbs in her high ceiling that I... Be a astute electrician, I observed it would be apropos for her to have a light bulb changing stick, which is telescoping, which you can raise. And uh, if you're shown how to operate, which I did, you can remove light bulbs high from the ceiling, from the floor, and not endanger breaking something that takes a long time to repair when you get to be around our age and be safer and sensible about your home repair uh, remedies and how you express them and how you keep yourself in one piece while you do it. Not to mention and cheaper.
1: I, not to mention cheaper yeah. on the financial budget.
2: And of course the Feast of Bacchus, the Bacchanal Ooh. as they called it, it, is not foreign to these pagan or pagan practices that they uh, implement to honor the fertility rights and the Sunstall, the solstice as you call it, the feast day uh, signs in the sky that the sun stops for a momentary while it moves from the cold death of winter to the bright return of the shorter days.
1: Now you mentioned the uh, Bacchus. You mentioned Bacchus. There, it brought to mind that at Mardi Gras, the one of the crews is uh, those are social clubs in New Orleans. Uh, is the crew of Bacchus? And they're, they represent the drunk and the revelry and all that stuff.
2: Yeah, but they have some of those beast feasts and some of that nudity and the throwing out of...
1: Oh, they got a bunch of that. You kidding shiny me?
2: Shiny things and coins and stuff.
1: You kidding me? In, 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 in New Orleans at Mardi Gras time, all the, all the yeah. women pulling up their tops and showing their boobs and going, throw me some beads... You know, they're all, all the guys, all the guys on the floats. All the, of course, the ones that are showing their boobs get the beads. You know,
2: the best breast in the west.
1: No, there's no, there's no there's no nakedness and revelry down there. Uh, here, this is this is uh, a little further down in the story, and it does interest us here particularly. And this is how a Saturnalia got intertwined with Christianity. So the couple of paragraphs here at at no time in the history of the early Christian church, was it ever thought that the birth of Christ took place on the 25th of December? Let me read that at no time in the history of the early Christian church. Was it ever thought that the birth of Christ took place on 25 December? In fact, Jesus' birthday was not celebrated at all until the mid-4th century. Now, let me cough, and I'm going to come back to this.
2: Hmm. That's a, I, while you're coughing, I will again suggest people might find an intriguing and informative read of Fossilized Customs by Lou White. Which has a very in depth presentment of the emanations of these so called Christian feast days, which are really pagan feast days back to Santa Claus.
1: Sure are. Yep, yep, yep. They all seem to all have their roots there, don't they? The 12th century Syrian bishop, Jacob Bar Salabi, records, now this is quoting the good Syrian bishop here it was a custom of the pagans to celebrate on the same 25 December the birthday of the sun, S-U-N, at which they kindled lights in tokens of festivity. In these solemn entities and the revelries, the Christians also took part. Accordingly, when the doctor of the church perceived that the Christians had a leaning to this festival, they took counsel and resolved that the true nativity should be solemnized on that day, unquote. In other words, all of Christendom knew that Christ had not been born anywhere near 25 December. However, since the Roman holidays of Saturnalia were still very popular, it was much easier, always convenience, much easier to merge the story of Jesus' birth with a celebration that had already existed for well over 800 years. And in actuality, Christmas only usurped Dies Natalis, Sols Invictus, with the church leader cleverly merging the Sun King with Christ, the light of the world. All of this was actually common knowledge, even through the 18th and the 19th centuries, it wasn't until the 20th century that the masses started confusion, confusing 25 December for Christ's actual birthday, only in the 20th century. Should this change anything for Christians? I wouldn't think so. One could think of it like how the British celebrate the Queen's official birthday in June, regardless of the actual date of the monarch's birth. So that's kind of interesting addition there, don't you think?
2: It's very interesting, Roger. You know, the uh, the commercial war, commercialization by the mercants, by mercenaries of these pagan feast days, posed as Judeo-Christos myth days, to assimilate, mm. aggregate, and to merge them together so that everybody's <laughs> celebrating on the same day and effectually giving homage, honorarium, to the same demon pagan gods posed as the Christ, ex-mas, as it were, is a very, very deceitful, deceived to believe the falsities and the lies of the Pharisees. In fact, there was a hijacking of the Roman Catholica Christo Synagogue of Satan Church by the Caiphas crowd in Vaticanus or Vatican II conferences, I recall, hearing recently.
1: Yeah, they hijacked it somewhere back then. I remember that um, Mel Gibson's father was all over that. And, you know, we've got some uh, some good Catholic friends, John Casera being one of them, uh, another one of Somebody I really admire, guy in Atlanta I've known for 30 years, a uh, 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 devout Catholic, but they understand these differences and how the church has been corrupted and all that. There was, you know, there was a story. Before I get over here, if I hadn't, I might have gotten rid of it. No, here it is right here. 690 clergy accused of child sex abuse. 690. Just in Illinois,
2: isn't that more Talmudic and Kabbalah than it is
1: Christo? Well, that's of course that's what they've done is they've corrupted the institution. The Jesuits run the whole show. You can see how sick the whole thing is from top to bottom. Just the other day, and I don't think I had covered it on the show. I had this the uh, story say because it just what what, it, what how did he phrase it. The Pope came out and that said we had an obligation to take in refugees.
2: Migrants, he called them, which are really revolutionary.
1: I I mean, I'm sorry, excuse me, but that son of a bitch that sits there and bends down and has people kiss his gold rings where they've got solid gold carriages underneath the Vatican. With all, all the property, all a key property all over the friggin' world. When you travel around the world and you get down, especially in this part of the world and everywhere you go, each town's got a center square and at least half or th- a third or a quarter of that square is a Catholic church. They got the prime real estate all over all these places down here. They got all that gold, exactly. and that son of a bitch is telling us that we got some moral duty to take in refugees while he sends his clergy out out there molesting young boys all over the world and all these people where, like in Colombia, the entire regiment, all the bishops, not Colombia, Chile, the, all the bishops in the whole Catholic Church in the whole country resigned in mass in one day here a few months back.
2: It's not a mere coincidence that the Black Pope Rogelio is um, a Jesuit, the first juiceuit Pope, Pope ever in the Catalica.
0: Church. Yeah, and he's Ar- and So it is significant he, time.
1: He's Argentinian too. Hey, Gary, how you doing, man? Hey,
0: good morning. Good morning, Raj and Chris and Shane. Yeah, it's uh, good morning. Quite a time. Did you Quite catch? Time.
1: Did you catch that video I played there in the last hour?
0: Oh, I did. I did. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, but I, uh, I wanted to just put in, yeah, a couple of uh, you know my two cents and and uh, you know you're talking about Christ's birthday and and when he was born and all and and I was always raised to believe in the, in the church that I was raised in that uh, he was born in the fall. And uh, right at the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and if you think about it, it says the sheep were grazing the field or the sheep or something, but anyway, the livestock were grazing out in the field, and that's, that's the fall, It's the fall harvest. And in all likelihood, he was born on trumpets, Feast of trumpets, high holy day. but, um, but anyway, it, it uh, yeah, it was total sabotage and. And then you have to throw in the Nimrod factor, you know. And uh, of course, I had heard, you know, you know, now December 25th is is really I I understood to be Nimrod's birthday, but who knows? Um, There's some sort of connection there. So
1: I've heard that. I've heard that too. (laughs) I've heard that too, Gary. What, Chris?
0: Jeff. Yeah,
2: I was mentioning the cutting off the golden phallus and the sacrificing of the children to the fires of Baal and uh, Moloch right. and all that other nonsense of Shamarinus, uh, ISIS as the yep. case may be.
1: Well, let yep. me God. Yep. Well, let me switch horses over here before we run out of time because this is also interesting. And this guy I've actually had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, we were at LSU at the same time, although we didn't know each other. And it's a guy that I've come to read his some of his work i've seen many of his videos and i have a lot of admiration for him and i like him too and that's dr david duke okay and He's a super level-headed guy and a real intellectual guy and very objective and gets a bad rap because they don't want people listening to him. They want him identified with the Hitler-type characters, which, of course, he's not in any way, shape, or form. has his own show over on the Rents Network uh, during the week. Probably should listen to that myself more. I sent him my book. We had some initial email, email exchanges, and But we've never been able to follow up on it. See, that's somebody that we need to understand my material right there. David Duke could pump that right through our whole community, okay? And maybe that'll happen. We'll keep, keep taking one step in front of the other one. Anyway, this is his uh, A White History of Christmas and how an ultra-racist Zion, Zio Grinch stole it. And uh, see how much I can get through with this. From 1789 to 1989, the first 200 years of the American Constitution, it was perfectly legal and very loved by Americans to have Christmas and Christian culture icons on public ground as part of our American fabric. Even the date of our Constitution was signed by its author with the preface in the year of our Lord. In eighteen nineteen eighty nine, it became illegal to have any Christian-themed Christmas display on any federal, state, county, or city ground. It became illegal to say any prayers in school, forbidden to even sing Christmas carols in them, or even call the Christmas holidays Christmas holidays. In the height of chutzpah, the same Supreme Court decision that outlawed any Christian symbols, notice it was a Supreme Court decision, it wasn't legislation. See how they're using this? Outlawed any Christian symbol because it was religious, decreed that the oldest symbol of the Jewish religion, the menorah, even huge monster menorahs could be put up on public ground. So 80% of the American people were denied their religious and their cultural heritage, while less than 2% of the population gets their religious symbol erected on any public space. When Christian motifs... Uh, Let me finish, Chris. We'll get to where, where Christian motifs once stood in front of the White House and city halls. Giant Jewish menorahs became perfectly legal, along with rabbis lighting it in Jewish rituals, celebrating Jewish dedication to the preservation of their race, religion, and culture in a ritual that denies our own heritage, religion, and culture. How did this happen? Who is the strange and powerful alien Grinch who stole Christmas? Here are the parts of my unique Christmas carol I mailed out to my friends, patrons, and subscribers. The true story of Christmas. The word Christmas comes from an old English word Christ's Mass. In German, it's vijenstocking or holy night the birth of christ in spain it's called navidad in ecuador it's called navidad too russian it's a word i can't even begin to pronounce the birth the early church of rome signified december 25th as the birth of jesus christ that date was the Roman solar calendar date for winter solstice, the sign of the sun's nadir, the rebirth of the sun and the spring in that life it brings. It was the most universally important day of ancient Europeans, which the church adopted to mark the birth of Christ. And the promise of a new life from him. Its religious and cultural significance dovetailed perfectly with the ancient culture of Europe and symbolized their hopes both of themselves and of their children. Created 5,000 years ago, Stonehenge was a solar and celestial calendar that foretold Christmas to our people as it predicted and it celebrated the Zenith solstice of the Sun in June and the sun's nadir and rebirth and its new life heralded in December the Christian celebration of the birth of Christ seemed a natural fit with the ancient culture in fact the church adopted the Christmas Yule tree green wreaths of life and unity the snow further father excuse me the snow father transformed into saint nicholas gift-giving and ancient symbols of new life love generosity and centered on the family children and community became part of the christmas christian tradition amid the cold and darkness of winter Christian Christmases Christ, Christian Christmas whew, melded easily to these family and community ethics. It became a universally revered day for white people all over the world. It's politically incorrect to say, but we must remember the American founding fathers were one hundred percent white. And overwhelmingly Christian even those of varying religious views universally identified themselves our culture and nation as Christian the Declaration of Independence claims our rights are endowed by the Creator and invoked the protection of divine providence the Constitution's authors marked its date in the year of our Lord They also openly loved and identified with the white heritage. Indeed, one of the first laws they enacted allowed immigrants only to immigration, only to free white people. They permitted Christian prayers, hymns in government, and almost every president from Washington on down was sworn in on the Christian Bible they were christians white people and the declaration was extremely nationalist so truth is they were clearly white nationalists weren't they up until 181989 americans could celebrate christian on public christmas on public ground Rich and powerful Jewish groups like the American Jewish Committee, the ADL, and the Jewish-run and funded ACLU waged war on Christmas. They demanded Christmas carols be outlawed in schools, and they succeeded in making Christian symbols illegal on any federal, state, or public ground in America. In the ultimate chutzpah, This arrogant 2% demanded to erect the oldest symbol of Judaism, the menorah, on public ground to commemorate their ancient message of Greek goyim to to preserve their race. The 80% Christian people of America can't celebrate Christmas. But the 2% Jewish tribe can put up monster menorahs celebrating Jewish racism. David Brooks of the 100% Jew-owned New York Times boasted of the Jewish takeover of America. True. The arrogant Jewish tyrants think that they have won, but I know we will taste victory, and they know it too. That is why they're so desperate to shut us down. Winter is here, but our sun rises from the darkness too soon Illuminate earth and sky. Our ancestors defeated the Ice Age. They will certainly defeat this, too. I hope you enjoyed this unusual Christmas card. Perhaps it gave you a smile in a world of seemingly gone mad. Yet. Aryan courage and valor always rises to the face of invasion in in invasioned oppression. It elicits magnificent expressions of our people's indomitable spirit. Christmas and its shared solstice solstice history celebrate renewal of life that stirs in the darkest days of winter oppression, and depression. Let us embrace the beauty and joy of our families and our friends, rekindle our faith, steal our bodies, heal our health, inspire our minds, and make our hearts beat with great love, strength, and purpose more so than ever before. Be merry this Christmas. Love and feast and play and rest you're, you brave warriors, thank you for letting me serve you, David Duke. Nice Christmas card.
2: You know, Hi. David Duke has been a lightning rod of contention that they have fought against because he brings out the truth. And unfortunately, hijacking religions to convert them to religions of men. And take over and to control the masses of people who follow these groups is not a new concept. When you go back to Flavius Augustus Constantine the Great and his uh, incursion at the Maelvian Bridge, whenever he was consulted by the black-robed high priest of Baal Caiaphas, or Caiaphas as we call him, and instructed by the uh, rabbis, the rabid rabbis of the Talmud, to claim he had a vision of a burning cross in the sky to uh, relate a story, a false narrative to his people, to imbue them with courage and conviction that the gods were on their side and gave them the ability to prevail over a stronger and larger force that day to start the myth, O's. That he was God's intercessor and the speaker relating God's words to the masses, and then later covinicaled the council at Nicaea, bringing together the scribes and Pharisees, the same one thrown from the temple of the Holy of the Holies for defilations and abominations therein, defiling it, and then later created on the seventh hill of Rome. Vaticanus Mons, Vaticanus Mons, Vatican Mountain or Hill to build the Vatican, the kind of life, the Vatican as we call it today, on top of that one, it was an ancient marshy swampy graveyard with many demon god and goddess worshiping locations beneath it and cleverly and artfully redecorated all those pagan god and demon god and goddesses with nice new trappings and cloaks of saints and regalia to assimilate the old gods and goddesses to the new Christos mythos religion of the ancient Roman cult. It is not anything new under the sun. They're still doing the same thing and deceiving us to believe and be deceived that these pagan, pagan customs are really Christian, but they're not they're
1: otherwise. Now, we've got, uh, we got more fraud going on. It's everywhere around us, our whole culture, society, the history that most of us are raised with and are familiar with. We have to unlearn because there's so many damn lies in there, and it's quite a chore unlearning all the lies you've been taught. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you know, think about it. You don't just have to learn this new stuff. you got to unlearn all the old stuff.
2: Hosea 4-6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. If it's not true, it doesn't matter.
1: Well, Gary, I popped over there to check Kitco while Chris was talking, and we we hadn't seen this altitude in the price of gold in some time. It's just edging up towards 1265 here uh, about halfway through the day on Thursday. We'll see what they're able to do with it tomorrow. It looks like a lot of the fabrics. You know, I scanned down the headlines on Zero Hedge from the articles. It feels like the fabric's starting to dissolve a bit. You
0: can feel it. It's encouraging. It really is yep <laughs> feel it turn and uh you just sense it when you look at the, the the big picture all the elements so um, yeah hopefully uh things are turning and uh you know turning in our favor so
1: well, I think that if we've, taken, if we've taken the time and we've been industrious and we've, because uh, uh, it was a gift, the time we've had all these years to prepare is just a gift. And, and people, well, why didn't that happen? That's been, I've been here and that's going to happen for years. Well, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. That just means you had more time right. to prepare for it. Okay? Right. That's Right. And so uh, there's going to be a lot of people that, for whatever reasons, haven't, didn't, or couldn't, and and there's going to be. I think the biblical definition of it is wailing and gnashing of teeth.
2: Precisely.
1: Yep. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. We're going to see and hear and experience that, uh, and we're going to see a healthy dose of dose of it next year. Uh, so next year is going to be pretty exciting. Uh, we've gotten ourselves in a good spot. We can kind of sit back and get some popcorn and watch things unfold instead of having to be in the midst of it unfolding and making decisions on what to do. Um, So I'm real pleased as we end. You know, we've come around. We've been around about a year on the network here and gone through our growth pains or some of them uh, uh, through the technical snafus and the fact that we're not a huge budget operation. But I think we've done pretty well, all in all, for the first year with all things considered. And uh, I think maybe we'll firm that up this coming year a bit. And uh, uh, we should be getting more people interested in hearing our message. We've got a few better tools at getting it out. This cast box tool we've got, where you can take these shows like today, which is I think a pretty good show today. Uh, take today's show and spread it around through Twitter or Facebook if you still go to those things, through emails or however you want to send it, uh, and we can spread the word better. So you know, I'm very encouraged about where we are and what we've got in front of us, where how we're positioned, and uh, the experiences we're going to have here in the next calendar year.
2: Oh, Babylon, oh, Babylon, mighty it, whore, the beast, beast has fallen.
1: It was a big year for you, Gary, because you really got your handle on waking up and reality and consciousness this year.
0: It's been a prosperous year, you know, when you step back and look at it, um, you know, and it all starts between your ears and, you know, and, um, God just opening your mind to, you know, and for years, I was really asking for truth. They show me the truth, you know, just like a few good men. I want I want to know. I want the truth. And uh, and all of a sudden, it's laid in your lap, and you know it when you see it. You know it. And uh, so, yeah, it all starts with knowledge and then understanding and wisdom and putting that into practice. So, yeah, we're all fortunate being in this in this small group and I come across this. All these different facets like you've talked about, the different pillars, absolutely. Well,
1: you know, the um, what I tend to think back on and to personalize the experience is my own. And, and I remember when I stumbled into John and Glenn's meeting there thinking it was another Benson, Bill Benson, the guy that wrote The Law That Never Was, Volumes 1 and 2 and a couple other books, pretty notable in our community years ago. And I—that's who I thought I was going to see, and I stumble in, and it's this very portly, uh, quite well. I mean, really, if you—if you'd have just met John or talked, just come across him on the street, you'd have never known what this guy, who he was. Okay, just poor, small, insignificant. Hi, how you doing? Very soft, diminutive voice, personality. But, man, when he stepped up on that stage to teach this information, he right. ripped open his shirt, and there's a big Superman T-shirt underneath, all right? I mean, he went through a personality change, all right? And, and it allowed him to take all of his lifetime of study and focus it up there on that stage. And that, I didn't understand what the hell these guys were talking about. But I knew there was something of great substance there. And that's what each has touched each of you. Because nobody comes into this and understands it right off the bat. Virtually nobody. Okay. And so you've all got to go through that process. But you got to start by knowing that there's something substantive there that qualifies you spending your time looking
0: stands out. It, it stands out. And, um, the, yeah, the information just hits you like a bolt and it's like, no, no, there's something here. There's something here worth digging into and exploring.
1: Well, it's changed my life, and I know the information has changed a lot of other people's, and it has the ability to change more, and hopefully we'll be able to touch more people and strengthen our own ranks and our own individual and collective positions and to have more of an influence on these guys because I'm telling you, they are absolutely terrified, and they're on the run. They're at the end of their rope on every one of these agenda strings they've pushed, and these guys have got big problems ahead of them, and the nicest thing is they know it. You may want to pop over to Zero Hedge. I'm not sure where it is on the list of stories, but Vladimir Putin gave a three-hour and 45-minute press conference today. Roger. I'm sorry. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. there it goes. At the end of the show, I lose the stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can hear you guys, but there's the whistler, so the show's over anyway.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what happened.
1: So he won't log back exactly online. what happened it's too much of a hassle damn so i'll yeah just to let you know that's exactly what happened lost the damn wi-fi connection uh, we'll be back tomorrow with Brent and uh, talk about probably this video. I'm going to post the two Christmas articles and the video on today's show description at CastBox. And we'll see you all tomorrow with Brent. Hope you got something out of a day. I did. Enjoyed it. I'll see you tomorrow. You guys take care. Ciao, ciao.